Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. It's easy and kind of appealing to look at our lives as being entirely our own. We make all the choices for ourselves, and ultimately, we're in control of who we turn out to be. There's a great flair of kind of rugged individualism to that view, and it can be truly empowering when employed in healthy ways. But the truth is that the past lives on us today, and influences our behavior in a myriad of ways that we don't always control. Some of these ways are obvious, like an injury early in life limiting our options today, your parents' choices to move from one city to another, and so on, going all the way back to which group in Africa your many times great-grandmother belonged to. It's one thing to accept how history affects who we are on the outside, but it can be trickier to accept history's impact on our inside, on the thoughts and feelings, on the self, however you want to define that, that makes us who we are. This is particularly true when it comes to sensitive emotions, experiences, and individual strengths like trauma, resilience, and benevolence. Today, I'm really looking forward to exploring how the past influences us today with a wonderful educator, Dr. Sherry Taylor. Dr. Taylor is an assistant professor of somatic psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies and also teaches in the clinical psychology doctoral program at the Wright Institute. Her scholarship and research interests include the intergenerational transmission of benevolence, resilience, and trauma, and she curates group trainings and workshops in the areas of anti-racism, diversity and inclusion, cultural humility, community mental health, and spirituality. Before we get going with our conversation today with Dr. Taylor, a couple of quick reminders. The first is our Patreon page. You can find us at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show. Your support is part of what enables us to keep on doing this work, and we really, truly appreciate it. Then, on top of that, if you've been enjoying the podcast, if you've been listening for a while, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe through the platform of your choice. So, all that said, on to Dr. Taylor. Dr. Taylor, how are you doing today? It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you for accepting it and for taking the time, uh, particularly right now when there's so much craziness going on. I'd love to start by kind of grounding the conversation in your background. Me too. Yeah, (laughs) and and the work you do as both an educator with people, with organizations. Let us know about that. Absolutely. And I actually would like to just start by also just a little grounding piece for us and for me really indulging me just to take a moment and both of us to set our intention. And I would invite our the listeners to also set an intention. You know, the world needs uh, a lot of slow listening right now. And so I would invite everyone to listen slowly, listen with your heart, listen with your head, listen with your feet and your hands, right? Thank you, doctor. That was great. Yeah. So the question was about me, like, what do I do? Yeah. What do I do? So my background's in clinical psychology. And before that, I have a degree in feminist studies. Right now, I am someone who works with individuals and communities who are recovering from all the ways that we learn to unbelong each other in the world. And so that can look like anything from anti-racism workshops and organizations Mm. and communities facilitated conversations between uh, folks who have unintentionally injured each other in the course of human relationships, individual work, 
with people who are feeling that there's parts of their life that remain unlivable or that they are wanting to connect to deeper parts of themselves, wanting to reclaim exiled elements of their ancestry, of their of their joy. Um, and so I do that in a lot of ways. I think that's kind of what, I, what I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I teach. That's the thing. I think it all boils down to I'm finally beginning to welcome the understanding that at heart, I'm a teacher. It's a, it's a way that I express myself creatively. It's a way that, you know, I continue to grow and develop as a human. So I'm a teacher. That's a wonderful summary. And, you know, thanks for giving that background as well. So to kind of try to get right into it here, and there's no real smooth on-ramp into this question, but what is intergenerational or transgenerational trauma? Right. Well, so, you know, this is where we can, there's a lot of research on that. And I'm, so I'm going to take the liberty of giving you my kind of take Please, on yeah. it. For me, intergenerational trauma, again, is all the ways that we live and absorb the moments where we have been unbelonged. And I don't know that that's a word. It's kind of a word that I use because it, it feels like it incorporates and gets straight to the heart of, of so many things. The intergenerational trauma piece is, you know, that includes the histories that we've lived, the individual experiences that we have lived, the community experiences that we've lived and that we've witnessed also, right? That's the thing, to witness another community going through uh, the trauma of racism or ableism or transphobia or homophobia or misogyny. All these things are, you know, for me, at the, at the bottom, 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 mechanisms where we unbelong each other. And there's a lot of folks who have been working in this field for a long time, and there's a rich body of literature in sociology and psychology across the board. And I think where I would just like to say firmly plant myself, where I've landed is that I, I am deeply interested in the wounds to the spirit and the soul, because I feel like that's a part that gets left out sometimes mm, mm -hmm. in the larger discourses. There's there's people who are writing and working and thinking from that perspective. But again, I don't know that it's entered as fully into the, you know, the everyday discourse um, as, as I would hope. So, Yeah. No, to just add on and kind of support what you're saying here, there's so many different levels that this can operate on, right? There's this historical level where you're looking at what's called historical trauma, which is kind of, I mean, there's no ranking of trauma. That's a horrible way to think about it. But it's kind of one of the most intense forms that a group of individuals can go through. This mm -hmm. is something like the, the Holocaust, the legacy of slavery and racism in the United States, right. the uh, removal and, and transport of indigenous peoples inside of the United States, you know, wherever you want to go with that. Yeah. And this isn't just like the bumps and bruises of normal everyday life that people are just kind of exposed to by moving through the world. This is really sort of a different tier. But then that's layered on top of all those normal traumatic experiences that you happen in childhood which might be increased by the fact that the color of your skin happens to be different than most of your classmates. 
And then this is layered on top of whatever your parents went through. So how they rear you, how they interact with you, whatever that might be. It, it's all a very, very kind of complex parfait to put it a certain kind of way. It absolutely is, you know, and just to say it's also right, the the response of the structures that we live within to all of those things, right? Absolutely. Yep. You know, and 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 the 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 intensified pressures that caregivers or communities find themselves under when trying to heal. Mm. When trying to show up for that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was reading up on your work and I was reading on your website, you had a great line there. And it was life's challenges and our childhood responses to trauma and neglect are not pathologies, but adaptive coping strategies. And I thought it was a fantastic line. And I was wondering if you could kind of unpack that for people, what you meant by that. Yes, absolutely. So in trauma work, the, again, all views are mine. The human impetus is toward growth and healing, right? In response to the environment, we do and adapt our behaviors to maximize our ability to grow, to stay in connection, to be in the world, right? Sometimes just to exist. And so trauma adaptations, they may look like, you know, in the historical trauma or in in post-traumatic slave syndrome, you know, we have a framework for understanding certain things that are maladaptive, you know, some might say, you know, some are, would be called also pathology, perhaps, um, like substance abuse. You know, there's a mm-hmm. framework to see that through what we now call a trauma-informed lens, right? And understand what happened, right? What is the what is the soil that got cultivated here where that became a primary coping tool? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And let me be clear, it's not to be dismissive of the sort of serious nature of, you know, of, of a substance use problem or et cetera, et cetera. But it's just to add this extra layer of understanding to, to taking right a long view of it, right? It's not just people don't just pop up and want to be, you know, using drugs, and, you know, all this stuff because, because they want to lose their homes, they want to lose their families, they want to right? It begs the question of like, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Makes total sense. Um, I think that part of what you're really alluding to here is just language and how we use language, particularly how we use language and care. How oh, Say that again. Really... How, how we use language in care. Like that's in care, it. Whether mental health care or just care broadly, care of other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's like really easy for us to say something like, uh, somebody is depressed, or to say somebody feels hopeless, or to say somebody has a substance abuse problem, or that they have, uh, for instance, in schools, there's a huge problem among Black, uh, Indigenous, people of color, children who are often mislabeled with behavioral diagnoses of various kinds, or they're they're given a learning disability. They're said, oh, the student's a bad learner, they're a slow learner, they need to be held back a grade. But a lot of the time, at the very least, the appropriate diagnosis is withheld from that child. Mm-hmm. And they're sent down this whole different track that's not actually appropriate for them because we've used the wrong language to describe. Right. It's language and it's also maybe the directionality because there's a, mm. you know, who are we diagnose? And maybe, you know, at this point in history, perhaps we're realizing that 
there are systems that also may be deserving of diagnosis. Absolutely. That that find themselves implicated in yeah, the sort of what the sociological term is like the antimony, the forgottenness of of folks. Again, unbelonging, I swear. That's that's <laughs> I will keep banging that drum in this moment. When you're working with somebody who has been traumatized in this way, somebody who has been been made to feel like they don't belong, um, has been kind of a victim of that unbelonging. Uh, what are the kinds of things that you do, you know, practically and in, in the space with them to help them with that? Well, I'm super different. Like I said, I'm not a psychotherapist. Um, I practiced that way for some time and realized at some point that that was not where my gifts and talents were best utilized. And I said, right, that I'm a teacher, right? Because part mm. of my inherent philosophy is that if given the space and container, the healing impetus will be ignited. My role is to uh, move the process along, right? Because it contains its own logic, its own trajectory, its own knowing of what needs to happen next. Uh, so, but to answer your question, you know, I also am uh, a minister and part of the my ministry is a kind of descent into the body. So I support folks in getting back into their bodies, in particular, for folks who have been disproportionately exposed to trauma, be they Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQIA, Two-Spirit, also white folks, right? Because white folks are also impacted by the intergenerational transmission of having played historically, often found themselves in the role of perpetrator. Yeah, absolutely. And that has its own traumatic impact as well. So I say all of that to say what I've found is that when I support folks in, in developing body-based awareness of how they feel, incredible things can happen in terms of how they relate to others, right? We can talk, you know, we talk about trauma. It's not that we don't focus on those things, but we seek the body's wisdom first. So for example, you know, I hold dream workshops. I really like to work with people in their dreams because I see dreaming as a technology of the body and a way that a person's uh, soul is trying to speak to them. <laughs> and once again, in my, in my estimation, Listening to your soul, it's never led me quite wrong. Mm. Not that the lessons that my soul has taught me haven't been hard. <laughs> Something I would love to explore with you here, um, because you're you're such a practitioner and you referred to that language of the body and the yeah. experience of the body. And I have to imagine that there are a lot of people listening right now who are feeling pretty uncomfortable in their own body. Yeah. for a wide variety of different reasons. Might have to do with the moment, might have to do with some of that history you're talking about, might have to do with their own experience of unbelonging, whatever it might be. Like if you, you know, had that person in front of you, what are some of the things that you would would want to try to do with them or lead them into to try to get them back into that experience of the body? Right. I would 
pause and slow down, right? Because it's like the world is in a global, is in a global trauma response, right? In a way. And so slowing down is the first thing. I would then offer them, ask them what resource they needed, but the resource not to move away from the discomfort, right? What resource will allow you to stay with the discomfort? Because the thing is, right, we know that if we can stay with it, it's going to change. It's going to change. It's going to turn into something else. Maybe it starts off as a sensation. I'm feeling sensation in the bottom of my stomach. This is making me really uncomfortable. All this stuff on the news. All, you know, I don't know what to say, et cetera, et cetera. If we can stay with it, then maybe suddenly it turns into something else. Or maybe it travels somewhere, right? Maybe it's now in your shoulder. Okay, so take a deep breath. I don't know. Again, we'll sort of be checking in on what resources will allow you to stay with it. Because what we want, what I would want is for that tiny flicker sensation, right, to move all the way through where it wants to go. Hmm. What tends to happen is that it will begin as a sensation, right, something that's seemingly benign or annoying, and and suddenly, you know, again, not suddenly, actually, like in a very paced process, it's now a word or there's a picture or a memory that is coming together, but we've the body is offering it up for contemplation. Does that mm. make sense? So that's what I do. When the individual that I'm working with, when their body offers something up, I have trust that it also means that that piece is ready to be worked with. You know, practical things like mindfulness or breathing techniques, I hesitate to say this is what I do with a person because I actually find it's extremely, as we continue to say, it's extremely complex, it's multi-layered, and I want to respond to that particular person's nervous system. So I can never make, uh, I've learned to not make any assumptions about, oh, this works for trauma because trauma impacts different containers and nervous systems differently, right? Doesn't mean that I don't learn everything I can or get trainings in all the different, you know, I got a lot of tools in my backpack, but hmm. I seek to get consent. No, I think that's a, a totally great framework. And it actually reminds me of something. We just had a conversation with Frank Ostaseski. He does work with people related to life and death and, yes. and palliative care and all of that good stuff. And one of the lines that he had in uh, the interview, to paraphrase it, because I'm not going to say it perfectly right, but it was something along the lines of when I'm like, I have a big box of tools. But when I'm working with somebody in the room, I don't put, I don't lead with my toolbox. I don't put that toolbox down in the middle of the room because one of us is sure to trip over it. Right. And that line just really stuck with, uh, stuck with me and reminded me of what you were saying there. It's, you know, in some ways a kind of a, a tongue in cheek, like little, not so much a critique, but a little bit of a critique to some of the self-help industrial complex where we're always trying to give people tools and, hey, here are the five steps to the 10 things you can do. Right. And the truth is that it doesn't always work that way. And everybody's body is different. So different ways to work with this material are all appropriate. Like it all might be okay for you. Yeah, absolutely. And there was something else mm. that 
that came up when you said the... I also wanted to note that I'm trained in sensory motor psychotherapy. Mm. And there are numerous techniques. There are, there are very clear protocols, right? There are things that we learn in that training that are step one, step two, step three, step four. But I, I you know, and this isn't, you know, a, a paid advertisement for sensory motor psychotherapy, but I got to say that a main draw for me to sensory motor psychotherapy, which is specifically a body-based way to work with trauma, both developmental trauma and more, you know, sort of more, um, uh, sort of single incident traumas, car accidents, et cetera. There are these foundational principles, right? And the principles, I wouldn't be able to, you know, rattle them off right now, but the, yeah, the, first, no the first one is the principle of organicity. And it is that kind of idea that all living systems move toward health, right? And we are self-organizing systems if if given, right, the space and the time to, to kind of gather ourselves. Things, I don't know, don't get me started because it's like life moves too fast. You know, I already see, you know, everything is so fast out here and I'm wondering, you know, when are we going to pause? There's a big component of trauma work that has to do with being with grief like huge. And we're, we, you know, very specifically, I'm just going to refer to United States. United States has a lot to grieve. And grieving isn't setting up monuments. It isn't creating museums. Grieving is feeling the loss, right? Feeling the loss of life, which is really serious. Right? Like what happens even to say it right now, right? Like suddenly something gets starts to get really still. Mm-hmm. Like I'm getting goosebumps right now. <laughs> Same, yeah. That's tricky territory. Those are big feelings. And we can do it. I believe, I firmly believe that we can do it, but it's it's a commitment. We're I want to be clear, we're absolutely talking about intergenerational trauma and how to heal and all of that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. I mean, I, I, I think that people are following along, but just a hundred percent clarify. Absolutely. This is all part of that puzzle, mm-hmm. you know, like a big part of it. I, I think that what you said there about grief was amazing. Um, and I think it's deeply true that right now there is a ton of understandable anger and rage and sadness and the whole thing, like deeply understandable. And alongside of it, there is a lot of grief that is being expressed out in the world fundamentally. Uh, There is a grieving process that we are collectively going through here. Yeah. And I think that part part of what you're saying, and let me know what you think, is that we just have to kind of honor that process and we have to let it take the space that it takes. Yeah, we have to let it take the space that we take. And and it's also like um it's it's a it's a moment to remember how culturally, right? Because every culture, black, indigenous, people of color, white folks, you know, we have traditions around this, right? We don't 
we have ways that we grieve and we grieve together, right? That's often the mm. first thing we do is that we do these things together, right? But it's sort of, we're at a moment of how to do that together on a much bigger scale. So it's a real opportunity to learn from history in a, in a different way, maybe. I mean, this podcast has a pretty specific audience. It's not the millions and millions of people who are going through this collective process, but I'm kind of moved in a direction here, Dr. Taylor, that I, I don't normally go with people. Go there. Yeah, but I, I think that you just have a wonderful energy around this. So I'm just like, all right, let's just see what happens. There's no really tidy way to frame this. So I'm just trusting your kind of intuition here. But if you had the opportunity to kind of like talk to that person who is really in the throes of that process, which I think that so many people are right now, what would you want to try to communicate to that person, particularly if they want to like keep going with the good work here? but they're feeling like the pain or the grief or the whatever is kind of getting in the way of that. Mm -hmm. It's making it hard to keep on going. Yeah. So it's funny because I, this is you. Thank you for your intuitive whatever, because <laughs> I have absolutely been thinking about this, right? Especially in this moment where it, it really does feel like we might be able to turn some really important corner around a very deeply entrenched, um, seemingly intractable <sighs> history that we have together. So I've been thinking a lot about what hope is. And there's a couple of things that I think I would want to say to that person who is, you know, who is willing to sort of move toward the moment, move toward the grief, move toward the discomfort and into the, the robustness of feeling, I'll say, right? Because I'm not going to use words like negative, right? Um, it's all life. Like this is happening, right? So it's a part of life, right? You know, this is where it's almost like I get like, is it, you know what I mean? It's like, is it trauma? You know, it's life. Yeah, And it's the life history and the life story that we are sharing and that we've always shared, actually. But what I might say is a couple of things. The first thing I would say is um, to offer yourself some reverence. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a deep commitment. And it takes a deep commitment to your own evolution, really, right? This isn't actually to, to move through this process is an internal thing that has deep impact on the external, if that makes any sense, right? I think that makes total sense and is kind of a perfect one-sentence summary of a lot of stuff that's going on right now. Offer yourself that reverence, right? Because in moving actually through that process, you are affirming life. Racism is not life-affirming. Transphobia is not life-affirming. You know, sexism is not life-affirming. This is that this is where grief comes in and it's this it's like magical key that opens this door. Right? So I would say that first. And then I would encourage them to understand that this is also the path to joy. Hmm. You know, I think of I was thinking um I've been thinking a lot about um my own sort of ancestral history. I 
I spiritually, I do work with my ancestors. Um, and just thinking about how, how did they survive all of, all of that, you know? And I, by that, all of that, I mean, chattels, slavery, right? Um, just the in, how did they survive hmm. the inhumanity, right? How did they maintain hope in some future together, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I, I would encourage, you know, whomever to really think about joy and joy has nothing to do with being happy. Ha ha. Plot twist. You know, joy has nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think, wow. Yeah. Absolutely. Joy has got nothing to do with being happy. Joy has to do right with the, with the, with the, 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 sort of my ability to meet, you know, I, this is where, why I get into the spiritual piece. And, and, I, and I really thank my sort of like Buddhist teachers and Vedic teachers and my African tradition and my indigenous and my dreamtime teachers that joy has, is how much life can I actually let in? I mean, it is, I mean, <laughs> Joy is very serious in that, you know. But but I I say that as a preface too because for me again, and it's it's a practice at this point, right? For me to mm. really connect with my joy, connect with sources of joy, um, and 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 I found that the beautiful things, you know, being with beauty really sort of helps me get into the paradox that paradoxical piece that I just kind of introduced about joy, where it's not about um, happiness. It's about really realizing that I'm a part. I'm partic- I, I'm participating, right? And I'm bringing a particular quality to my participation in life, mm. right? Um, so connect to your joy, right? Um, and then the third thing, and this is where you know a lot of my work also is centered, is re reconnect to your imagination Mm. because we can't move toward anything that we can't see that we can't imagine and right now it feels that there is a drought of imagination right these are the this is not the first time that we've been in this place right around these issues Mm. and so where, how do we really sort of blow out our imaginations into a future where that's not centered around unbelonging each other in all the ways that we do? So this is why I love working with dreams mm-hmm. because also you that's a whole separate episode for us because dreams because <laughs> dreams also you know I, I I'm I the way that I hold dreams and the way that I work with folks in dreams is that they're not limited to the activities that we do when we sleep so is that something that you try to take out into the world with people what's going on there and oh, how do you do that yeah so once again my my esteemed psychological 
mental health field, you know, and I really appreciate Freud, Jung, all the ways that um, psychology has learned and has sort of educated folks about dreams, the importance of dreams, right, as as a, as as to our psychological functioning, and way before them. <laughs> There were people working with dreams in very different ways, right? And working with dreams as bridges to other um, realities. And that's not in some like, ooh, but that's just really in that way of like, we can manifest the things that we want to see. We can create new ways of being in relationship with each other, with the earth, with the animals, right? Um, Via our ability to imagine them, right? Because then there's a spiritual writer and he's wonderful and he's a teacher of mine. Um, His name is Richard Rohr. And Richard Rohr, I was reading, he says, right, we don't think our way into a new way of living. We live our way into a new way of thinking. Mm -hmm. That's great, yeah. Right? Yeah, so just to recap, three things. Give offer yourself some reverence, right? Because you're affirming life when you choose, you make the choice to lean in and not turn away and and move through this process of dismantling, you know, in this instance, sort of like these histories of systemic racism and and trauma and oppression and, and also the underbellies of privilege. Then connecting with your joy. Connecting with your joy because that's going to help you out when everything is looking super dark and you feel like you're exhausted and you feel like there's nobody to turn to and what am I doing anyway? And we've all been here before, you know, burnout, right? We got to plan for the long game here. And then, yeah, that final part, which is really fun, is that re-educate your imagination. That's a wonderful phrase. You should have that on a t-shirt. Reeducate your imagination. That's a really good one. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, Dr. Taylor, as we get toward the end, I can't here, believe that this is my gosh. Wow. I know, right? We we moved quickly, but you know, I'm I'm happy to keep going, but I also want to take care with your time. I appreciate it. As we get toward the end, there's a question that we like to ask everyone who comes on the show, and I'm really interested in your just thought on it. It's a really simple one. Uh, if you had the opportunity to go back in time. And talk to yourself as a kid, as a young adult, whenever it would kind of be most meaningful for you. Um, what would you want to say to that person? Wow. See, you don't even know how. <laughs> There's no, this is what I mean by this became, even engaging in this today became uh, a piece of my healing from uh, the ways that intergenerational trauma that you know has been brought about by histories of racism and 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 whatnot. So just to have you ask me that question, like what would I say to my younger self? Hmm. hmm. You know the truth. The fact is, I have to look. I have to get help, right? But I do have something that I would say. It's you. The world wants. Right. It's you. The world wants. Yeah. That is a uh, a wonderful salve for that feeling of unbelonging, I think. Yeah, right. Thank you for asking me that. I am 
so happy to. Thank you for your uh, truly wonderfully authentic and and true response to it. And uh, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for just your time in general today. Thank you for being here. Um, is there anything else that you would like people to know about uh, before we wrap up about your work, where to reach you, anything like that? You know, I like I as we began, I always sort of end conversations that I have on these topics with a kind of, you know, a little a sort of dedication of merit, you know, so any anything that's been healing or helpful or resonant or touched you or moved you to move deeper into the mystery and freedom of your humanity. I just send it out into the world, you know. Thank you for listening, and and this is great. It's really nice to meet you. This is wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this, Doctor. I really, truly appreciate it. So today, I had the true, true, true pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sherry Taylor, who is a wonderful educator, a fantastic speaker, And I hope that you could tell throughout the conversation and just by my enthusiasm here at the end, I really loved talking with Dr. Taylor today. I thought that she spoke to so many of the topics that we explored during this conversation with incredible care and nuance and thoughtfulness. And I hope that you took the time, took the space that she suggested that you take, and you really enjoyed it as well. Some of the things that we talked about included intergenerational or transgenerational trauma. That's kind of where things started. And what's important to understand is that this trauma can come in layers. It can be historical in nature. It can be based on what you learn from your parents. It can also be based on the way that society treats you and different people's responses to you in the moment that might be extremely racist responses. Those too can be extremely traumatic in nature. And I want to be really, really careful and clear about part of what we talked about here today. The point of talking about intergenerational trauma is not to suggest this kind of hopeless narrative where trauma in one generation permanently scars the next one. Uh, That's just not the case based on the data. It's a massive over-inference, and it leads to, frankly, some really problematic views about different kinds of communities of people. The point instead is to acknowledge the very real additional burden borne by groups of people who carry this kind of historical ancestral trauma, to have a ton of sympathy and empathy for it, and to raise awareness of it so that we can start providing the appropriate resources to groups that are in desperate need of them. So before we go, I just wanted to remind you about our Patreon account, You can find us at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and I'll include a link to it in the description of today's episode. Uh, Your support really does mean a lot to us, and it's part of what enables us to continue to do this work. If you've made it all the way to the end here, I'd also like to ask that you take the time to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. So once again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen today, and we'll talk to you soon.